0: Amanda Leduc is a Canadian writer and disability rights activist. Her most recent novel, The Centaur's Wife, is a realistic but fantastical tale about a woman and her family after the world's end and the magic of the nearby mountain that is attempting to reclaim the land. The Centaur's Wife is nominated for the 2022 Evergreen Awards. Amanda is on her way to becoming somewhat of an expert on ableism and fairy tales and is bringing these ideas into the modern world. Join me as I chat with Amanda about her writing, her work as a disability advocate, and so many other fun rants.
1: So hi, Amanda, how are you? I'm good, how are you doing today? I'm
0: good, I'm happy. It's a little rainy here, how about you?
1: Uh, Well, it is not rainy, it was supposed to be rainy. My uh, mother and I are working on a garden and we had all sorts of like plans that we were going to do today because it was supposed to be raining, so we were like, "Okay, well, we're going to be out and doing all kinds of other things because we can't be in the garden." <laughs> and now it's it, the whole day has been like, "Oh, but it's it's sunny outside, like, and and you know we could be outside doing gardening stuff right now." Yes, yeah, so and now you're missing it. It's we'll we'll survive. It will yeah. be <laughs> we'll just catch up later. Yeah,
0: exactly.
1: <laughs> Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? So my name is Amanda Leduc. I am a writer. I live in Hamilton, Ontario. Um, I've always wanted to be a writer. I can remember being a young child talking about storybooks with my grandparents and, you know, writing my own stories with construction paper covers. And I, I, that was just something that I always wanted to do. Uh, I went to school for writing, I did an undergraduate degree at the University of Victoria in creative writing and philosophy, and then I did a postgrad degree at the University of St. Andrews uh, in Scotland, and that was creative writing as well, and my plan originally was to get the degree in writing so that I could teach because that sort of felt like the only um, job opportunity that we're really available to to writers, apart from you know writing and making millions of dollars off of your books, which <laughs> we all know does not happen to a lot of us. So, um, so I, I that was what I got the degree for, and then um, I just sort of found that teaching wasn't really my my thing. Um, I really like doing one on one sessions, and I like being in mentorship with students and that sort of thing. But my my skills tended to go in other areas. So I did a lot of work in arts admin um, for about a almost a decade after graduating from postgraduate uh, school and then started working for the Festival of Literary Diversity in Brampton in 2016. And I've been with them ever since. So I work and coordinate uh, all the communications for Brampton Literary Festival which happens every year in May and then we have a children's festival too that happens every year in November and it's kind of the perfect marriage because I can do a lot of my own writing uh, and you know that helps to raise the profile of of the festival and then being at the festival and involved with the festival has helped to raise my own profile as a writer so it's been really really great and that's kind of been my life in the last sort of decade has been trying to find that balance and and now that i have it i'm I'm trying really hard to hang on to it for as long as possible (laughs) absolutely so i was looking into it a little bit can you tell us a little more about
0: the festival of literary diversity sure it seems like a really amazing idea
1: oh well thank you it's it's not it wasn't my idea i have to say uh the festival was founded by Jale richardson who is a black canadian writer she resides in brampton Ontario and it was started in the the organization was started in 2014 and the first festival was held in 2016 and the mandate of the festival is to support marginalized storytellers from Canada and from around the world. So that's BIPOC writers, writers from the LGBTQ community, disabled writers, uh, writers who are writing from different faith communities or are operating at any sort of intersection of uh, marginalization or I mean, it's in the title right festival of literary diversity, we, we like to talk about the ways in which Canada's literary mosaic is different from what we might have, you know, imagined over these last few decades of Canadian literature out in the world, we want to show the world that Canada looks very different from you know, the, the kind of canlet that we all knew growing up. And we want to celebrate that and bring it out to the world as much as possible. So we do that through our two annual festivals and then we do a variety of literary programming throughout the year. Now that we've been in the pandemic you know, for the last two and a half years, we have shifted most of our um, programming virtually. This year we had in-person programming in Brampton again for the first time, which was lovely. But I think we're gonna be moving to a model where we will always have some element of virtual programming to, you know, just keep in mind the fact that there are people who aren't always able to come Mm -hmm. to events and that they can really benefit from having virtual recordings of things available. So yeah, it's just, you know, trying to get the wonderful nature of Canada's literary heritage out to as many people as possible, in as many ways as possible. Have you? Do you feel
0: like you've seen some growth in that
1: area since the festival started? Oh, definitely. Uh, I think there's a lot more awareness now in terms of you know what diversity is, and a lot more questions being asked in publishing, in other areas as well, in literary industries about what kinds of voices have been missing from the landscape and, and what kinds of voices we really should be highlighting uh, and giving more space to. Um, and that's really encouraging. I think we still have a long way to go. Uh, it's definitely still not perfect. But I, I have been encouraged by the community that has come up um, both around the fold and then, you know, the, the community and the the Things that people are fighting for around the country in terms of books getting published and, and voices getting out there, it, it's different than it was even 10 years ago. Uh, and I, I think we need to you know be, be mindful of that progress and, and grateful for it while also recognizing that there's still lots of work to do.
0: Yes. What do you see as some of the steps forward to continue the progress?
1: I think there can be a tendency to assume that literature that speaks to a particular community is only for that community so for my you know for example from my perspective as a disabled writer I think there's a a wider perception in the publishing world and the publishing industries not just in Canada but everywhere that a story about a disabled person written by a disabled writer is only going to be of interest to people who are themselves disabled and that's simply not true you know we all benefit by reading about books and about people who are different from us Um, we all benefit you know when you think about the the willingness of people to read science fiction and fantasy and you know delve into these worlds that are literally so entirely different from the world that we live in and yet people bulk or publishing industries publishers themselves bulk at publishing books that you know are, are written from a perspective of difference that's rooted in our own planet in our own world in which we live um, I just think, you know, we need to continue to ask why that is and, and to really encourage publishers to be seeking out different stories uh, by writers who are writing from their own elements of lived experience. Uh, again, you know, a lot of a lot of work to do in this particular area, but I am heartened by the fact that I think the publishing industry is listening, even if only in in little bits. Um, Hopefully they will continue to listen and, you know, continue to to implement large scale changes.
0: Yes, absolutely. It's nice to see that there's some some progress that's been happening. If we can keep the ball rolling a little bit, for sure. Mm -hmm. Fingers crossed. Yes, absolutely. Would you like to tell us a little bit more
1: about The Centaur's Wife? Sure. So The Centaur's Wife is what I like to call a dystopian fairy tale. So it is an apocalyptic narrative about a group of survivors who uh, live in the shadow of a mountain and they sort of band together in their city uh, after in, in the wake of a planetary disaster. The world has been more or less decimated by a meteor shower. And the survivors have to come together and try to figure out a way to you know, move forward into this new life that they all have. And the main character of the novel is a woman named Heather. She is disabled. She has cerebral palsy like myself. And she also has a somewhat mystical connection to the mountain that looms above their city and the creatures who may or may not be living in that mountain spoiler alert there there are creatures it's not that much of a spoiler we we learn it you know right at the beginning of the book um and they're they're centaurs and so heather has a particular connection to one of the centaurs and it's about you know she heather has a husband as well and brand new twin daughters who were born just at the beginning of the book just as the world ends and it's about you know, trying to, her trying to craft a life for herself and her family while working through grief. Uh, And that, you know, becomes a, a through line for many of the other characters in the novel. The other main character is a woman named Tasha, who is a doctor who flees her own city in the wake of the planetary disaster and finds herself in the same city where Heather is. And in many ways, the two women develop this kind of uneasy friendship or relationship, it's not even really a friendship, they're just sort of drawn to one another and and intrigued by one another Um, and intrigued really by each other's own different approaches to what it means to survive um, in the wake of, of terrible traumatic things happening to you. Uh, And the book is interspersed with these sort of real world narratives with uh, stories, little fairy tales that we find out, you know, Heather is telling to her children and then stories that Tasha's parents, the Tasha the doctor, um, her parents told her when she was a child. And so the book is about how we use storytelling as a way of surviving and how the stories that we tell shape the worlds in which we live in very particular ways.
0: Hmm. And that's something you touch on a lot in your other work as well, right?
1: Hmm. Yeah, so before, a year before actually, uh, a year before The Centaur's Wife came out, I published a nonfiction book called Disfigured on Fairy Tales, Disability and Making Space, and it looks specifically at fairy tales and the way that disabled characters are often depicted and portrayed in fairy tales in particular. So you'll have something like Beauty and the Beast, for example, the, the beast starts out as a handsome young man. And then he is specifically made ugly or made to be beastly, quote unquote, as a result of bad behavior. Um, and it's not until he's learned how to be a nice human again that his disability such as it is is taken away by magic and he's given a happy ending. And even though this is just one fairy tale, a lot of the fairy tales that we read sort of follow the same kind of structure where you have someone who is made disabled or they're born disabled perhaps, but then their disability is taken away by the end of the fairy tale. And that is through, you know, virtue of magic or maybe they learn something or maybe they encounter a wizard or or something like that. But the point is that in many of the fairy tales that we know and love, disability becomes this kind of simplistic thing where it's just something that magic can solve. And that contributes to the idea in wider society maybe not that we think that magic will solve disability, but that. Disability is not a problem to be solved on the collective um, side of things. It's it's a problem, quote unquote, that is solved by individuals, um, by individuals who you know overcome their disabilities or um, happen upon magical cures or happen upon technological advancements that you know make their disabilities go away. And while this can be true for some people, it's not going to be true for everyone who has a disability. And I think you know that lack of nuance is something that fairy tales because they sort of people look at fairy tales and they think they're very simplistic even though fairy tales themselves are actually very complex in very particular ways but because they have this initial kind of simplistic lens on the world people read fairy tales and sort of internalize this message that the world is is simple you know if you're a good person or if you in cases like the the brothers grim for example, a lot of their fairy tales have to do with god and faith in god and the idea is that if you have enough faith um you know a happy ending will come to you if you if you just believe strongly enough and this is the kind of thing that you know we can look at now and say well that's that's just nonsense like everybody knows the real world doesn't work that way but in the real world in which we live there still are a lot of people and a lot of media narratives that go out into the world that essentially say the same thing where it's you know if you are disabled but if you you know exercise enough or if you drink green tea or if you know try try this new herbal supplement and it will make your pain go away there's this this tendency to look for these kinds of simplistic solutions so that everybody can you know, get the happy ending that they all deserve. And I guess this is a very long winded answer. And I apologize. Uh, I guess my my goal in writing disfigured and then in looking at, you know, the kinds of things that I look at in the Centaur's wife as well, is this idea that um, survival and you know, moving through the world is complicated. And sometimes hope doesn't look the way that hope or a happy ending doesn't look the way that we might Traditionally, view of a, a happy ending, and I want people to recognize that when they read my work, and maybe come away from it with just a, a little more appreciation, maybe for the fact that the world can be quite difficult, and and one of the things that you know can make it easier is is having that kind of grace and awareness and empathy for other human beings. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. So, how do you feel about that sort of? cultural mentality of the goal is to, like, cure the disability, per se.
1: Mm-hmm. Again, it's a, it's a complicated thing, right? Because there are some individuals for whom disability is a very painful thing, and they would quite happily, you know, sign up for a cure to not have chronic pain, for example. Um, and if someone, if that's what someone wants, if they choose, you know, not to have pain or not to have a particular disability anymore, and they are given the opportunity to not to not have that, then absolutely that is, you know, their choice and something that should be celebrated. But I think the difficulty arises when we assume that, you know, what worked for one person might work for another. And, you know, because so-and-so doesn't want their disability means that everybody doesn't want their disability. I mean, speaking for myself, I have cerebral palsy and I walk with a limp. I deal with a lot of chronic pain. Uh, I dealt with a lot of bullying when I was a child as a result of the way that I walked and and the way that I, you know, sort of moved differently through the world. And when I look back on it now, when I was a child, if you had asked me if someone could take this away, I would have said, yes, absolutely. I I don't want to, you know, I don't want to go through this anymore. But when I look back on it now, it wasn't, the disability as such that caused the issue, it was more the world's reaction to it, right? Um, When I was bullied on the playground, it wasn't my disability that caused the issue, it was that other people were perceiving me in a particular way and responding to me in a particular way because of my disability and we never look at the world and say well that's the thing that has to change how we respond to these things is what has to change right there's a lot more work i mean this was you know i was a child on the playground 30 years ago so there's been in these intervening three decades a lot more work being done in terms of bullying and anti-bullying and and you know really trying to change the root of that being like you don't make fun of people for things that are outside of their control, arguably, you don't make fun of people, period, it's just Mm -hmm. not something we should do. But, you know, at the time, I didn't see the world that way. And it was hard to, to see the world that way. And to understand that maybe things could change. When I look back on it now, I think, you know, it is it is the world that needs to change. It's not the disabled person, it's not my disabled body. Sure, I would love to, I deal with a lot of current pain and I would love to not have it in my life, but I don't, I wouldn't want my limp taken away. I wouldn't want the fact that I walk differently taken away anymore because that's something that has contributed to the person that I am today. And it's, it's something that I'm actually very thankful for when it comes down to it, having cerebral palsy my condition has really made me into who I am today. And I I think I need to honor that. And I think if we could move as a whole to a world where we recognize, you know, that everybody, everybody has needs and everybody has particular things that make them who they are. uh, And we honor that. I think that is the kind of special world that I, I want to be moving towards. It's the kind of thing that you know, I tell my young nieces that's the world that I want them to move toward as well, uh, and I, I have hope that we will get there. You know, it's going to take a lot longer than I think any of us might want, but slowly but surely, uh, one one little piece at a time, I think we're getting there. Yes, I think that
0: it's starting to be that you can sort of see those those prejudices l- being less common and those those preconceived notions mm-hmm. a little bit less so, especially the more that people are open. Is there anything that you can see for like, you know, the average person do to help move that process along for those of us with, you know, friends and family members and ourselves that are sort of suffering under that lens?
1: Mm. I think when it comes to disability, especially if you are not yourself disabled, it's really important to listen to what other people who are in the community, disabled people specifically, what they're saying about it. Um, It's important to listen and pay attention to what language disabled people want to use when they Mm -hmm. speak of themselves. It's important to, to educate yourself about the kinds of issues that are important to disabled people in the world today, both in Canada and the world, you know, all around us because part of one of the many issues that you know has has dogged the disability community is that we have for a long time had people speaking over us right there was this kind of perception that people who happen to be disabled you know didn't have a voice in society when the reality is that we just weren't being listened to. And the things that we were requesting and asking weren't being, you know, uh, granted or again, listened to in any way, shape or form. So I think any, you know, move toward change, especially from the non-disabled side of things needs to come from that basis. It needs to put disabled people at the center of decision-making and really listen to what is being asked and, and consider, you know, how can we, move and change the world and and change policies in ways that center the disabled experience because one of the things we talk about in the disability community is when it comes to accessibility in particular if you make something accessible for disabled people it actually means that you make it accessible for everyone Um, just you know if you think for example One of the uh, things that I always talk about are curb cuts, so if you're on a sidewalk and the way that the sidewalk slopes down to the ground when you get to the end of the sidewalk and you go to cross the street. Those curb cuts were initially put in place for wheelchairs to make it easier for someone who's using a wheelchair to cross the street to you know slowly go down onto the ground um, off of the sidewalk with no danger to themselves. And so, those are implemented first and foremost for disabled people but they're also really really helpful for people who use strollers um, they're helpful if you are pushing a trolley of any particular kind you know and, and wanting to get across the street uh, if you're lighting a suitcase behind you it's a lot easier to to you know roll your suitcase down that little tiny little ramp than it is to pick your suitcase up every single time you want to cross the street so there's lots of things like that 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 happen and what i encourage people again, non-disabled people in particular, but everybody really as a whole to think about when you think about accessibility, when you think about educating yourself around disability, it's it's really about making a world that is more accessible and better for all of us. It's a world where we all care for one another and we, we really think about what it means to live in the world as a human being with dignity and you know make sure that there are as many options available for people to, Live their lives uh, and 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 thrive as much as they are able, um, as as the persons you know that they've been brought into the world to be. Mm-hmm. I love that you pointed out that it it does
0: make it better for everyone because I feel like mm-hmm. something that we're all seeing a lot of recently is this pushback against any sort of help to any marginalized group because for mm-hmm. some reason there's this perspective that. Well, things are going to get harder for me if we input this legislation or whatever it is, right? Like Whatever it is, we're trying to improve for someone. It seems like so many people recently feel like it somehow means that they have to work harder or things get harder for them in order to accommodate these other
1: people. Yeah, and I think that rests on you know a, a faulty assumption, which many people have in the world today. Um, you know, our world is inherently and has been built to be inherently unfair for many people from various marginalizations, right? And people who are in power and have had privilege for a long time don't see that inherent unfairness. So they just see that, oh, you know, we're all we're all on the same level playing field here. We all have the same opportunities. And the reality of the matter is we don't. We don't all have the same opportunities, right? Um, when you look at disabled people again, for example, one of the the things that's um, been really big in popular culture and, and media in the last couple of years is accurate disability representation in film and storytelling and television shows and a huge part of that is making sure that disabled people themselves are are given opportunity to act in film um, and in television shows and, you know, uh, not always have non-disabled actors playing disabled characters. And the argument against that is always, well, you know, the, the actors who get those roles, they get it because they're they're the best ones for the part. And the question that we always have to keep asking is, well, but did any disabled actors actually audition for those roles? You know, was there a call put out for disabled actors? Are there disabled actors with disability X who can, you know, play this role? And if there are no disabled actors who can play disability X, and you know, that in and of itself, I think is a, a faulty assumption. But if there are none, then we need to ask why, you know, a, a lot of the things that, that we talk about come down to opportunity and again, down to access, right? If you have a child who uses a wheelchair and they want to be in theater, but their local community theater doesn't have stairs into the theater space, and they can't even get in there, then how do they, you know, start on their their journey of coming to theater, right? If those points of access are denied disabled people, right from the very beginning, it becomes that much harder to work towards being in these spaces, right? Again, it's that idea that, oh, everybody has, you know, equal opportunity to act in theater or to go to theater school or to you know do all these kinds of things, when the reality is that many disabled people do not have these same kinds of opportunities and what we need to change is the structure of of how these things play out. We need to change these systems. Um, and that's only something that you you do if you actively make, you know, movements toward leveling that playing field. If you are actively putting out casting calls, for example, going back to my original point, putting out casting calls that specifically ask for disabled actors to fill in the roles, rather than saying, you know, we will, you know, put this up for audition and anybody who wants to audition can come. The reality there is that anybody who wants to audition equates to anybody who has you know the time the money to spend going to that audition the time to take out of their day to go do it uh you know if they're disabled it means that they have access to transportation that can get them to the audition venue like all of these things are structural issues that need to be looked at uh when we make these kinds of decisions and when we try and implement these kinds of changes it's a lot of work but it is worthwhile work uh and that's what i you know keep trying to to impress upon people is is that it's it always takes more work to make sure that you're being inclusive and that you're being mindful of the different needs of everybody who's trying to access a particular space, but it's always worth it. Always, always. Yes, absolutely. There's
0: more steps than I think most people are aware of in order Mm -hmm. to get to that place. Like you were saying, like, it's not just, you know, anybody can audition. It's like, okay, do they have the time off? Do they have the money? Do they have the connections? Did they start at six? Like you said, like there's just, there's so many other layers beyond just, well, they could have applied. They could have yeah, applied for the exactly. job. Like, sure. They exactly. could have applied for the job, except that they can't read your not accessible job offer that you put out. Like, you know, yeah. There's...
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. They could have applied for your job, except that it was only, you could only apply online and they don't have access to a computer and they don't have access to internet except it, you know, only particular times during the week. Like those are, those are real problems that get in people's way. Um, And it's not as easy as saying, oh, well, you know, obviously, if they really, really wanted it, they would have found a way. Sure. For some people that that works. But for other people, it's it's a real insurmountable issue. Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
0: Sorry. A bit of a a pivot here while we're talking about some of your other work, though. I read one of your articles when all of your faves are problematic. And I feel like it's in the same sort of realm Mm -hmm. in terms of like the, the arguments against it. In terms of the example you gave in terms of an artist that you have trouble feeling connected to anymore and appreciating their work because you heard that they do awful things. Can you sort of tell us a little bit more about what you think we can do when we find out that some of our favorite creators are kind of awful people?
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, I think... Again, you know, this is one of those things where the world is very complicated, and and I think as a kind of defense mechanism against the world being complicated, we, we really, you know, cling to this idea that we can approach these complications with these unilateral decisions that, you know, We'll just make everything, if not go away, we'll be able to deal with it, right? So if if you have problems, if you really liked Creator X, for example, when you were growing up, and then you find out that Creator X was problematic, well, you know the answer here is to just not not take in any more of Creator X's work anymore, and just like have that be that, right? And and let the the market essentially dictate, you know, if if you're not going to buy their product anymore, then let the market sink them And that is absolutely a, a route that one can take and in the particular article that I was talking about that was the the route that I decided to take for a particular creator um who had you know I had discovered was a little bit well not a little bit but slightly more problematic than I you know would have would have wanted to hear about one of my faves as it were and I think you know it can be really really hard especially when you're talking about creative pursuits and and work that inspires you at particular times in your life and in this particular instance i remember speaking to someone about this creator and saying you know this was someone that i really enjoyed their work growing up and they were like yes and that you know is you don't need to feel guilty about Enjoying their work when you didn't know certain things that you know now, but the question is going forward. You know, are you still going to support that person's work? Are you going to support new pieces of work that come out, knowing what you do know now? Is it, you know, does their work have that much of an impact on you that that for you it's worth it? Um, and in my particular case, it was absolutely not worth it. You know, not worth it to continue partaking of this person's creative work just because of you know honoring what they and their work did for me when i was younger right. um you can see this in a lot of you know current places you know and, and i i i won't name but you know someone who wrote for example a beloved series of children's books which are <laughs> very much loved and adored by a great many people mm-hmm. um, i you know was one of those people who loved and adored those books and i still think quite fondly of those books um but I'm also, you know, not reading any more of that particular artist's work. Um, I do not engage with any more of the offshoots of that particular artist's work because I I just don't think it's worth it. And also, you know, in this particular case, we're talking about someone who has a lot of power already and and I don't feel that I, as a consumer, need to be contributing to that power anymore, specifically when um, there are other, not powerless, but other people with much less power than the individual in question, who are in need of support in ways that this individual is not, right? And that for me, again, you know, is not a unilateral approach to something. Like it's looking at something and saying, this is complicated. There are things that, you know, I I still hold dear about particular works from this person, but then also the way that I go forward into the world, knowing what I know now has to be different. My approach has to be different because, I want to support other things, and you know, I, I think in in publishing we can oftentimes run into situations where the the reaction, the sort of knee jerk reaction, is to be like, oh, okay, so what we will, you know, not publish author X anymore, or we will, you know, use particular hashtags in publishing to you know highlight that this you know novel is is a a, you know good novel or a novel that people should be listening to it has people should be listening to and paying attention to it has our stamp of approval kind of thing Mm -hmm. and that even in of itself even though it has good intentions you know misses a lot of intricacies in storytelling and a lot of nuances in the conversations that we're having around what it means to tell stories what it means to tell stories from your background stories that are not from your background what it means as a writer to write outside of your own experience what it means as a publisher to publish a story from someone who is writing outside of their own experience all of these things are really really complicated questions and they all have really really complicated answers and sometimes the answer for author x is going to be different than the answer that you have for for author y right and this is hard these are hard decisions to make Um, it can be very tempting to look at it and say, okay, no, we are just going to, you know, we're not going to publish books by author X anymore. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's the right decision to make in some cases, and maybe in other cases, it's not, you know, maybe the other cases are okay, we're going to publish author X, but they're not gonna get the same kind of distribution that they once got, um, you know, we're not going to market it uh, in ways that we did before, all of these kinds of things. And again, I'm, I'm going off on tangents, but I, mm-hmm. I again, the point is that, the world that we live in is complicated and it requires complicated solutions and it can seem hypocritical I think sometimes to to say okay we're going to do this for here and we're not going to do the same thing for this different situation but if it's a different situation it might require a different solution and that is just something that I, I think we need to internalize moving forward as a way of like are we really really committed to equity here and to support specifically to support in for those who are most marginalized then we need to be we need to you know this this has to be a scalpel here this is not a wrecking ball and in (laughs) terms of leveling the, the the playing field uh it requires very delicate uh solutions to problems
0: right so when you're talking about uh stories that can sort of like help inform our world a little bit are there are there fairy tales or different types of stories that you find are less problematic in that effect? Like, I know you've done a lot of studies in terms of how fairy tales are bad at that. Is there Mm -hmm. anything that you would say, okay, maybe instead of fairy tales, we should be looking at X?
1: Because there's some really great lessons here. Anything like that? Right. I don't know if I would frame it such as you know, instead of fairy tales, we should be looking here, especially because fairy tales are problematic, because they they are in in very many ways, right, fairy tales are products of culture, Um, they're products of the cultures in which they, you know, came to prominence, and we need to remember that, so I, I think rather than tossing them out entirely or saying, you know, don't read fairy tales, read this. I think we just need to be mindful of the fact that it's good to read these things with a critical eye and, you know, read a story like Beauty and the Beast and say, like I say to my nieces, right? Like, well, you know, she can still like him or she can still be friends with him if he looks, you know, if he looks strange, like you can you can be friends with people who look different from you. That is not, you know, a, a huge undertaking. And I, I, think, I think we are beginning to see ways in which fairy tales, particularly from places like Disney and Pixar and and those kinds of uh, institutions, they are, you know, starting to take up a more, again, here comes the scalpel, right, a more <laughs> delicate approach to these kinds of, these kinds of stories and, and really trying to examine them with more nuance, nuance is, is really, really key. I will say for fairy tales in particular, for me, they're really valuable because the kind of show, two main ways of of looking at the world in the sense that they sort of, they are, can be tales that aspire to different things, you know, aspire to a happy ending, aspire to an individual vagabond, rags, protagonist in a fairy tale who rises up and, you know, falls in love with the princess and becomes the king or something like that. They can really inspire people to, to move forward into new realms and new situations. And then there are other fairy tales that end unhappily, as do many of the fairy tales in the Brothers Grimm collections of stories. And those tend to operate more as cautionary tales, which are, you know, in the sense of like, well, you know, you shouldn't do this, or you shouldn't, you should be a good person, because if you're not going to be a good person, then you know, this might happen to you. And I think we need to look at both of those different kinds of story construction and and ask what they, what purpose do those kinds of stories serve? Because they both serve a purpose. It's like the wider question of how stories operate both as mirrors and as windows. So people can see themselves reflected in stories back at them. And they can also use stories as a window to view somebody else or to view something else. And both of those kinds of stories are valid. I would say that both of those kinds of fairy tales are, are valid as well. Um, one of the things that I, I think is is really interesting is that comic books in particular have, I would say, uh, approached the, the element of disability with a great deal more nuance than fairy tales have. Um, and they've been doing it for a lot longer. Um, Many Marvel characters, for example, are disabled in, in many ways. And, you know, they they have superpowers which compensate for those disabilities, which, you know, is is its own thing that we can talk about. <laughs> but I, I think they are doing and they're even with like the X-Men, for example, right? This whole idea of having mutants and having them be essentially persecuted in in particular ways and looked down upon and the, the sort of wider question in the the comic books around. What is a society that ostracizes people in this manner? You know, what is that society built of? What, what, how, you know, can we, how can we look at things in this way? And I know that that's not always the point of comic books, right? They also valorize strength and and posit you know, the X-Men as, as these kinds of X-Men and the Avengers and all of those characters as these um, individuals who can save us, right? And that also is a story that has its own place. Uh, But again, I I think we need to question the systems inherent at the heart of these stories right, why is it in a fairy tale that a happy ending looks a particular way, why is it in a comic book, um, someone who you know is disabled by result of a freak accident or some sort of nuclear accident. And, and then you know they get superpowers as a result of it. Why is it that the world is then that person's responsibility to solve because of the superpowers that they have? Why does no one else have a collective responsibility or bear a collective responsibility to participate in making the world a better place? And again, I'm not saying that we need to get rid of these stories as they are. I just think we need to also be telling different stories in addition to the stories where, you know, we have the individual who's saving the world through Marvel or whatever, why don't we have comic books about, I don't know, cities and towns that band together and and the citizens all look after one another and you know they they make of themselves these like idyllic places to live sure you read that and you think that's that's not exciting that's like super boring leduc whoever heard about a comic (laughs) book like that but but i i think you know we just don't see that enough in the media around us and if we saw it more we would be able to see the kind of everyday hero trope you know that that we don't talk about as often and, and people would be able children especially would be able to see the ways in which the differences that they bring to the world are unique and really valuable and you know instead of being worried about being different think well maybe because i'm different there's something that i can bring to the world that other people don't see or understand right mm-hmm. um, and that those are really important messages for children especially uh, because those are the kinds of stories that kids are exposed to at a young age and it really shapes how you see the world
0: right yes we have quite the collection of books that touch along that here at our library because we just they warm our heart and that's what we want to just like stinky implant into them (laughs) We're really young like you're saying when they're young and they don't really you know know what's behind it they're still taking okay. in so much of that information and that impression still lives in their head for their whole life really exactly mm-hmm. okay. in the fairy tale in the centaur's wife is that mm-hmm. entirely out of your imagination or is that based on something that you've read before uh which which fairy tale Well, like I guess okay fair enough I guess the the yeah. one that's told as like the historical fairy tale of the centaur coming down mm-hmm. from the mountain
1: so that one came totally from my own head um and i was i was when i realized initially that the book was going to be about centaurs i had this moment of of trying to figure out if they were historical centaurs and in the sense that you know are they centaurs as the Romans understand them, or as the Greeks understand them, or are they centaurs entirely out of my own head, out of my own creation? And I, I eventually decided on having them be centaurs out of my own head with their own creation myth, um, because I, I wanted to, I just wanted to explore the idea where it would go, and I wanted to see what fit best with the story. Um, and so that, that is where that came from. Yes, it, it all came from my own head. And it was basically just because I wanted to, I wanted to write and and you know not think about whether something might have been historically correct according to you know the, the Greco Roman myths that we know. Right. It was really, it was really lovely. It was it was very liberating. It was very, um, <laughs> it was fun to create an origin story and an, and an origin myth of my own. Yeah. Um, I recommend it for all writers. It's a really great exercise. <laughs> Okay. So
0: I'm looking forward to your fairy tale collection of all of the fairy tales you're going to write that are not oh, yep. just your <laughs> no versions, fresh versions.
1: <laughs> that would be excellent. Mm, yes. Yes. I mean, I am, I am, I'm working on several projects, uh, probably too many, but I, <laughs> I would like to write a, a collection of fairy tales one day. We'll see what I do with it.
0: Oh, that would be fun. And like Mm -hmm. the beautiful gilded
1: binding and everything too. So it looks like a fairy tale collection. Yep. Yep. The gold leaf along the sides of the pages. Yeah, I could go for that. That would be lovely. Right. (laughs) And then somebody picks it up off the bookshelf and they're like, I have not heard of any of these.
0: And it's wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Now the Centaur's Wife was based on a short story that you had Mm -hmm. previously written though. So what did the process of you know transitioning from short story to full-length novel look like the storylines don't even seem that that similar
1: yeah yeah um that's a great question thank you for that so the centaur's wife was as you say originally a short story it was published on the website necessary fiction in 2014 and i it was sort of just sat there as a short story for for about a year and i remember workshopping the short story with my writers group at the time and one of the writers in the group said you know i'd really like to know more about these centaurs. like it just doesn't feel like we get enough time to spend with them and so they sort of stuck in my head, and that comment stuck in my head, and I thought, okay, well, maybe I can expand it into a longer short story. And I, by the time I had finished that longer short story, it was fifteen thousand words, so it was a novella. And at that point, I was like, mm, no, I think that there's something more here. I, I think that you know, I, I can expand this into something something larger. Uh, and that that's what happened. And it was it was definitely quite a process. I started working on the novel in the fall of. Well, no, I shouldn't say that. I had the novella finished in the fall of 2015 and sort of an inkling that it was going to be a novel. And then I started working on it as a novel in earnest in the spring of 2016. And then it finished. I finished writing it as a book in the spring of 2020. So four years, four years of like writing and then rewriting and then rewriting again. I tend to write a draft and then, you know, I'll rewrite from the beginning um, the next draft. And so I think I did that four or five uh, five or six times working with my editor at at random house. Um, it was a, yeah, it was definitely an interesting process. I'm I'm happy to report that the process of editing for my next book is not going to be as onerous, which <laughs> I'm I'm mostly happy for my editor's sake that she she doesn't have to go through like six drafts of <laughs> of my book. Um, but yeah, that that was the Centaur's wife. And each book is different, I'm finding each book has its own particular process of of coming to be. And I'm I'm learning to just trust this and and enjoy it as it happens and and treat each book like the gift that it is.
0: Oh sweet. Instead of like (laughs) the torture that it sometimes sounds like. I mean it
1: is also a torture. Yes, (laughs) it is a torture. Um but you know, it's. A, I think it's also necessary because you're also trying to become a particular kind of person when you're writing the book, right? Like you're, when you finish a book, you're a different person from who you were when you began it. And so there's all this like self-change that's going on too at the same time as you're writing. So those two journeys simultaneously is always a, a fun ride. <laughs>
0: you're a lot of fun to live with while you're doing that
1: yeah yeah well my my dog doesn't seem to complain so I think that's, I think she's okay the best. <laughs> yeah how do you find the balance between putting
0: enough into your work to challenge people's perceptions of disability without it feeling like that's like the goal of the piece or the moral of the story sort of thing how do you find the balance there
1: hmm uh it's tricky and I think it's always again different for each particular piece that I'm that I'm writing. I Tend to work because I because I really like fairy tales and I grew up reading fantasy and science fiction. That that tends to be where I I work best as a writer. So I, I work best in the realm of like metaphor and and you know um, this is real but not real. And I, I think my books would maybe feel to me anyway they would feel more political if I was writing strictly in a realist kind of kind of lens. But because I'm dealing with animals that can talk and you know half human half animal creatures. Um, There's a little bit, I I feel like there's space to be a little bit more um, slippy in between things and I can kind of sneak uh, little, you know, bits about disability rights and disability justice, I I can kind of sneak that in in the guise of Telling a story, um, the fairy tales in particular were really, really helpful for that because there's a kind of authorial voice that comes through in a fairy tale, right? Where you sort of know right when you read "Once Upon a Time," you sort of have a sense, instinctively, that like, oh, this is going to be a fairy tale. It's going to be about things that you know are not real and are not happening. There might be fairy godmothers and you know a pumpkin that turns into a coach, and this is all okay because we live in fairy tale land, and <laughs> we just sort of accept that these these are the rules of the game. And if I was writing books that were strictly realist, I think my approach to disability would be different. I don't know how it would be different, but it, it would be different as it is writing in a kind of magical realm. I can play with things a lot. I can play with what different bodies look like because in the real world, a different body looks like mine where you know my foot is twisted and I walk with a limp Um, in the fantasy world in the fairy tale world a different body might look like a man who or you know like a someone who is half man and half horse Uh, but both of those things in their own way can carry the same kind of weight and can work towards the same end I find a lot of freedom in working in that fairy tale space Uh, So I think, I think this is where I will stay. Um, And, you know, sometimes it might be really overt fairy tales, as in The Centaur's Wife. My next book still works within that kind of mythical space, uh, kind of modern fables, more modern fables sort of approach. And then another project that i'm thinking about now is probably going to lean more in the realm of science fiction Mm -hmm. um playing with all of those things at the at the same time right playing with conventions and um again looking at you know because a science fiction approach to a different body might be something like someone who has if you think about the mad max movies right or the charlize theron character in mad max fury road i think it is um where she is an amputee and she has uh, a a prosthetic that's also a weapon right Mm -hmm. and that is something that fits squarely in the realm of science fiction right we we are used to seeing that kind of thing that is that is normal if you Mm -hmm. can feel in those spaces um and i i just find i find it exciting to to push the bounds of what difference might be in these realms. And in so doing, hopefully, you know, plant a seed in the reader's mind for what difference looks like in the world around us, as well as on the page.
0: Uh, so I have sort of a totally out of left field, special question for you. I mm-hmm. uh, mentioned that I was uh, talking to you to one of my co-workers here at the library who used to be a disability rights worker. And mm-hmm. she wanted me to ask you what your opinion was on inspiration porn, which do you want to explain it? Or you'd probably be best to explain it because I saw your face light up there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, inspiration porn, for anybody who doesn't know, is kind of a, a, a general term for the approach that's often taken by non-disabled society toward the disabled um, community where the idea is that oh my gosh you're just so inspiring for going out and doing normal things in your life Um, oh my gosh and people have said this to friends of mine who have wheelchairs right out just doing their thing getting their groceries or going to starbucks and people will stop by them and say oh my gosh you're you're like such an inspiration um and the subtext here is you're an inspiration for getting out of your house and going about your life because if i was you i would not I would not want to get out and go out in the world. I would, I've had friends who say, you know, if I was you, I would kill myself. And they say it as a compliment because they think that they're imparting that they think someone is strong. But what they are actually saying is, I don't think your life is any kind of life worth living. And I would kill myself if I was you. And inspiration porn sort of operates as a kind of uh, slightly nicer approach than that sort of outright, if I was you, I would kill myself sort of thing, where you're like, oh my gosh, look at that person in their wheelchair going out about their business. Like that's just, look at all the things they must have overcome. That's that's so inspiring. That's so wonderful. And here again, you know, it's tricky because there's a difference between saying something like someone who, for example, is a Paralympian, um, someone who is an athlete and has trained a really, really long time to get where they are and has won a gold medal. It's different saying, looking at that person and saying, wow, you know, that's a really inspiring story. Good for them, for all the work that they've done. And then saying, oh, but the person who, you know, goes out to get their coffee in the wheelchair is just equally as inspiring because, oh my gosh, they must have overcome so many things to get outside into the world. Especially when you think about it from a structural perspective, right? there's something very condescending about looking at someone and saying, Oh, your life must be so hard because you can't walk or because you use crutches or because you know, you deal with chronic pain. Well, how do you know you don't you don't live my life? You're not inside of my life. Um, And many of the barriers that disabled people encounter have nothing to do with being in a wheelchair at all, right? If you're a wheelchair user, the problem is not that you have a wheelchair. The problem is that the world is not built for your wheelchair. Mm -hmm. And the world refuses to continue to be built for your wheelchair, right? So it's not inspiring that you can go out and get your hair done. When you should be able to go out and get your hair done regardless, right, like the, the the ultimate goal that we're working towards in disability rights and disability activism and disability justice is getting everyone to understand that we all have different needs and all of these different needs deserve to be met, regardless of what kinds of needs they are. So my need for, you know, a flexible work schedule so that I can nap in the middle of the day if I get really tired, um, That's a legitimate need and it's equally as legitimate and pressing as someone who has a visual impairment, um, you know, needing Braille when they get into an elevator um these are needs that should be met for everybody and does it require more work on the part of our governments and on the part of society to implement all of these things yes it does but it's work that we should have been doing in the first place and so rather than saying oh my gosh you're so inspiring for overcoming all of these difficult things in your life why don't we say gee Let's get rid of all the things that make your life difficult in the first place. Let's get rid of all the structural barriers that you encounter when you go out on a daily basis. And then, see, you know, see what see what happens. And like we talked about a little bit earlier, right, when you make the world accessible in that way for someone who is disabled, you're also actually making it more accessible for someone who is not disabled as well um it's something that benefits everybody having a kinder approach to life having you know the recognition that inspiration porn is bad and that we shouldn't be looking at people solely on the basis of what they can or cannot do or can or cannot contribute to the world is bad that's where we need to be moving toward i am inspired by people when they are putting in hard work towards something and you know bettering themselves and when they inspire me to do something in the world to make change right seeing someone the story that i always talk about i live next to an assisted living facility and one day when i was getting a rideshare back from somewhere the driver noticed a gentleman on crutches going into the building and he just sort of you know shook his head and he was like oh that poor man his life must be so hard and i i didn't say anything because i was so shocked that he said it out loud but it was like how do you know do you live his life like Maybe he's used crutches his whole life, in which case that's the only life he knows it might be difficult at times, but it also actually might be a lot easier for him to use crutches than it would be for you to use crutches because Mm -hmm. he's used to it and you're not and like, what does that do right what does that act of saying Oh, his life must be so hard, it does nothing material in the world apart from tell the person who's in the car with you that oh, you're, you're a nice person because you're thinking about somebody else or you're noticing somebody else. Uh-huh. But are you really? Like it just, it didn't go beyond the car, right? And then that driver can go out ab- around the rest of his day and think, oh, what a nice person I am because I noticed this person using crutches on the sidewalk. Like that, that actually does nothing to improve the world if you want to inspire me if i want to be inspired do something that inspires me to change the world in in ways and make it better and so that was yeah a rant um but the the too long didn't read part of it (laughs) inspiration porn is bad and and we should not we should not be condescending to people in that particular way. And if you, you know, find yourself thinking like, "Wow, you know that that it's so good that that person in that wheelchair got out into the world," ask yourself why that is. You know, what is it about your perception of the world that is making you think that way? And perhaps question that um, at every opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's exactly the rant I was hoping for. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'm glad to oblige. Perfect. Yeah, that's what uh, I think that's what she was aiming for. She's like, Oh, ooh, ask her about this. It'll be great. <laughs> <Okay>. Yeah. How <laughs> to get y'all riled up. But in a good yeah. way. No, I, t- it it, I, I sort of feel that way about other things when I see like, the stick that every child matters stickers on the back of cars yeah. and stuff like that. It's yeah. like, cool. Did you donate yeah. some money to like actually help with that? Did you write a letter to your MP? Like, or do you just have a sticker? So now you look like a good person yeah exactly. It's, exactly it's something that i think a lot of people are like, aha i've done my good deed for the day mm-hmm. just leave it there hmm. uh, okay. before we wrap up i have to ask my favorite question is if there's anything that you've read lately that you
1: would like to recommend I love it. Hmm. I'm currently reading a book called The First Astronomers by Dwayne Hamachar, and he's uh, he's American, but he lives in Australia, and he spent a number of years speaking with Australia, well, Indigenous elders in Australia and the Torres Strait um, about astronomy and the way that um, Aboriginal cultures in Australia have you know, kept centuries of records on astronomy. And it's I'm reading it for a, a project that I'm hoping to do, a new book on, on grief and the universe and sort of all these giant, big considerations. But it's really, really wonderful and really, really lovely and particularly poetic in the way that it, it melds poetry and storytelling and science. Um, as someone who, you know, was not a science major and, you know, had difficulties with math, to put it lightly, <laughs> when I was growing up, it's, it's really, really lovely to read about ways in which poetry and science can wind together. Um, it's it's a bit difficult to get. Uh, I think the ebook version is a little bit easier to get here in North America. I had a copy that winged its way all the way to me from Australia and I paid a pretty penny for it, but it's it's... <laughs> Every, every penny was absolutely worth it. So uh, Dwayne Hamachar, the first astronomers. Well, thank you. So we need an
0: Australian connection, but that's yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Weirdly enough, I have one, so that's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me today, Amanda. I had a, a
1: fantastic time picking your brain today. It was oh, wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. It's always such an honor to get to speak about these things and to get riled up and go on rants. Uh, <laughs> I hope it wasn't too long of a rant, but I, I appreciate so much the, the depth of your questions and the, the nuance within them. It's always really lovely to be able to talk about these things in ways that you know, get people going and, and hopefully inspire some, you know in the good way, inspire uh, some people to go out and make changes of their own in the world absolutely thank you so much you're so welcome
0: thanks for listening to my chat with amanda if you're interested in learning more about her and her work links to everything we talked about are in the description box below if you enjoyed this episode make sure to check out my previous chats with evergreen nominated authors and follow us so you don't miss the next ones